when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly take on what's going on in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing Theresa May's road to Brexit speech on whether Britain is ready for John McDonnell as Chancellor of the Exchequer. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard, Economics Editor Chris Giles, and Deputy Comment Editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And don't forget, if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe to get it on your phone, tablet, computer, television, whatever, every Saturday morning. Theresa May delivered her third and probably final big Brexit speech in London on Friday. It was meant to be Newcastle, but due to the snow, it was delivered at the Mansion House. In this, she laid out a series of compromises in the UK's position to open trade talks with the EU and secure that deep and special partnership. George Parker, let's begin. You were there at Mansion House. You didn't have to trail up the country. What did you make of Mrs May's speech? Where did it come from and how is she going to sell this to the hardline parts of her party? Well, it's a long-awaited speech, as you know, Seb. We've been waiting for about 20 months for the Prime Minister to set out exactly where she wants to go on Brexit and the future EU relationship. I think the first way to look at this speech, really, probably the most important way, is to see it as a, a balancing act to try and hold the two wings of her party together. And in some ways, it's a feat that many people thought was impossible to pull off. She's made a 45-minute speech at the Mansion House where she set out a vision for a future relationship, which hasn't immediately torn her party apart. That's also with the fact that she made some quite tough messages, particularly to the Eurosceptics in her party, where she was talking about the fact that we would have to stay in some EU agencies and pay for them, that the European Court of Justice rulings would still continue to affect us, and so on. However, I think the important thing to remember out of all this is that although it may once have held the Conservative Party together, at least for now, the problem is what happens when this plan is delivered to Brussels. And already there are quite ominous signs coming out of Michel Barnier's office, the chief negotiator, that this plan may be dead on arrival. So although she's managed to hold the Tory party together with the speech, which is no mean feat, the question is whether it will actually fly in Brussels. And I think that's a much bigger question. Because Miranda Green, this is essentially the thing Mrs May does do with these speeches. We had the Lancaster House speech, which defined Brexit as leaving the single market in the customs union. Florence, which defined transition as standstill. And now the road to Brexit, which essentially says we're going to have some kind of softest relationship with the EU going forward. But it's all about a domestic audience, about people in Britain. And the thing that I thought it was probably her best Brexit speech to date, because it was the one that was most based in reality. And it was the one that saying to people, you're not going to have all your cake and eat it. There are going to be some compromises, some trade-offs in market access. And this is where we're going to make them. Well, that's right. I mean, it's very interesting what George says about being most aware of how it goes down in Brussels. Of course, that's absolutely right. But sitting in London, it seemed new today. It seemed like a new pragmatic, constructive tone and not the kind of obstreperous anti-EU playing to the hard Brexiteer gallery that we have seen from May and from members of her cabinet previously. So it felt like moving on a bit, actually. I mean, 
We've discussed before how each of these speeches she's made just allow her to survive a few more weeks and then will this be the day she makes the choice? Today it did seem like progress and this idea that the country did not vote overwhelmingly for a very separated, distant relationship with our closest neighbours. She made that point, and that's a crucial point to make. She had the words of binding agreement in there, which is something that's a tough, bitter pill, I think you've called it today, Sebastian, for the hard Brexiters to swallow. So there were things in there which I think have given us movement on the cherry picking and the fact that Brussels does not want the UK to be allowed to cherry pick. I also think it is quite interesting because she's saying we want a bespoke deal. We don't just want Canada and we can't be Norway because that involves us being a rule taker. But actually, if you could make progress on some of these other sectors, at what point does Canada plus, 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 plus become so different from Canada that it is actually a bespoke deal? Well, as George, I think, said in one of his news reports, the latest terminology to add to our lexicon is Canada dry which essentially makes it sound like Canada, but not actually that much more exciting. But the key thing, Miranda, though, is the overall trajectory has not changed. We're still leaving the single market and, crucially, still leaving the customs union. Despite everything that Jeremy Corbyn and Labour have said about this, it's still that thing. So I think the way to think about it, it's the softest Brexit possible while still making a hard, ultimate break with the bloc. You know, I think that's absolutely right. It's the softest, hard Brexit. Um, <laughs> And you're right to to mention Corbyn because, of course, there's been so much excitement about Labour changing its position to come down hard for us staying in the customs union. But, of course, one of the things that May interestingly pledged today with the speech was that she was going to keep Britain part of the EU's level playing field. And that means keeping to EU rules on things like state aid, which is something that, of course, Jeremy Corbyn doesn't want to keep at all for the UK. So actually, in a way... May is a bit more aligned with EU harmonisation that matters to Brussels than Corbyn is, for example. And those red lines, George, that were set out in Lancaster, some of them have been blurred gradually and there was a bit more blurring going on today, crucially on the European Court of Justice, because Mrs May said we will leave, there will be no jurisdiction. She's now said today she wants to broker associate membership of some regulatory agencies on aviation and medicine and pharmaceuticals. Now, that kind of stuff is important to maintain various parts of the UK economy, but it does mean some role for the ECJ. You know, how do you think Conservative MPs are going to feel about that? Well, Theresa Villiers, one of the leading Brexiteers, former cabinet minister, was saying that there would be many uncomfortable moments in Theresa May's speech. And I think that's true. The continuing role in some shape or form for the ECJ is one of them. The fact that Theresa May is going to commit to maintaining very high level of European levels of uh, regulation, which, of course, is one of the things that Brexiteers always used to say that they wanted to throw off is another one. So there are a whole series of, uh, I think you put it very well there, the idea this is the softest hard Brexit she could just about get away with. I mean, there are a whole load of things in the speech which are conciliatory. The tone, as Miranda said, was much warmer towards the European Union, the acceptance that when we leave the single market, there would be consequences in terms of access. But when you strip all that away, there is still a hard Brexit at the core of what Theresa May is talking about. And the other thing which you should never lose sight of is that basically Britain is trying to get single market style levels of access while behaving as a third country, staying outside the entire legal and regulatory order of the European Union, refusing to pay large amounts of money into the European budget and refusing to accept free movement of people. That is still at the core of Theresa May's plan. It's one of the reasons why, despite the much warmer tone, I suspect this will still get a bit of a raspberry when it comes to the EU setting out its own negotiating guidelines at the March European summit. And of course, she flagged up that Philip Hammond would be making a further speech in these run of speeches that seem never ending. Exactly. 
about this crucial issue of financial services. Because, of course, Canada, anything that takes Canada as a starting point, does not deal with the service economy, which is so crucial to the UK, and financial services above all. So she sort of raised the possibility that there might be some creative suggestions about financial services, but very much from the point of view of the EU needs the City of London, which, of course, as George is pointing out, might not be how they see it from Brussels. There was quite a lot on goods, though, George, because this is really where it comes down to the question of not just the Irish border, but also Dover and how all that's going to work with the UK's manufacturing sector for things like um, agriculture and cars. Now, on that, there were these two ideas Theresa May proposed. One was some kind of customs partnership. I believe the EU has already said that that's not going to be in the offing. The other one was on a frictionless as possible border on goods and using various technological solutions. This is sort of the Norway-Sweden model in there. And I think that really summarises this point that you said, that when these things go in front of Brussels, they're going to say, hang on a minute, this is not Canada, this is not Norway, this is not legally good enough, we're not really interested in that. You know, What did you make of the goods proposals in there? Well, I think it's interesting that in the speech she flipped on its head the order in which she put those two proposals you just described. And she said that option one was this idea that Britain would collect tariffs on behalf of the EU when goods arrived in Britain and then try to track them to find out where they were going to end up. And if the goods that arrived were destined for an end destination in the UK and the UK decided to set a lower tariff, they would then be able to apply for a refund from HMRC. One of those, one of, even David Davis described this as a blue sky thinking idea. And this is now number one option for the UK. In terms I think we're both lost already. <laughs> customers relationship. It's so complicated. Imagine but, the phone uh, line to the HMRC on that one. <laughs> it involves tracking goods across Europe. I mean, it's phenomenally complicated. One thing I would say about it, though, is it would be so complicated, it would take many years to implement. And I suppose that's one advantage of pursuing these kinds of options, because even the HMRC says it could take between five and seven years to do this. It might be a way of placating the pro-Europeans in the cabinet and to fudge over the Northern Ireland border question if you can look at, make it look like look, we're going to work on these technological solutions, but it could take many years to work them out. In other words, customs union extension by another means. I think the key question, Miranda, is, is this speech now a basis to start negotiations? Because until now, Michelle Barney and the EU have always said Britain hasn't told us what it wants. Well, Theresa May has said what she wants. Now, a lot of it we think is not going to go anywhere, but at least it's a basis. So we've got the March summit coming up very soon. The question is, does transition get signed off? I think based on today, the answer would probably be yes. And is there a basis to start talks? That's the real question now, isn't it? I mean, I certainly hope so. I mean, there was a tweet from Michel Barnier almost immediately saying that he welcomed the speech and we could move forward and react. As you pointed out to me when we saw that tweet together, you can read that as a threat or a promise. More of a threat. More of a threat, says George. I think there was a really interesting moment, actually, after she finished her speech and took questions. And a journalist, of course, as we do, tried to trap her by getting her to repeat again, no deal is better than a bad deal. In the end, they got her to say it, but it's clear she doesn't believe that. It is clear that Mrs May wants to do a deal, and I think that's absolutely crucial. And I think that by the tone of her speech and the seriousness and detailed nature of it, that will also have come across to the other side. And do you agree with that, George? It also strikes me, once again, this feels like Brexit is definitely going to happen in a year's time. Yes, I agree with Miranda there that the idea of no deal being better than a bad deal was not mentioned in the body of the speech at all. It's clear that Theresa May wants to get a deal. She said it was her personal responsibility as Prime Minister to see that deal through. She also said in her speech that she wouldn't be making threats to walk out. So 
it's definitely the case that Britain is locked in a much more conciliatory path now, and I think that will be welcomed in Brussels. I think it will smooth the water a bit ahead of the European Council in March and allow this transition deal to be agreed, which is very important, obviously, for the British economy. But there's going to be six months of very heavy pounding ahead. And despite the tone and despite the concessions and all the rest of it, I still think that people will look at this in Brussels and think this is still Britain trying to pick and mix two models, which they say are completely incompatible. And in the end, they will offer the UK a Canada-style trade deal. John McDonnell is probably the most influential and powerful figure in the Labour Party. He's the thinker behind Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, the man who's responsible for its radical economic policies. But is the City of London, Britain and even his own party ready for an avowed socialist chancellor? Jim Picard has interviewed and profiled the man himself in this weekend's FT magazine, revealing some quite interesting things about this slightly mysterious figure. Jim Picard, let's begin with John McDonnell. You know, he was appointed shadow chancellor to a lot of um, surprise, even among the Labour Party, because he had a reputation as being quite hardline, as being very dedicated to radical policies, and said many controversial things before. Mm. But ever since he entered that role back in uh, 2015, he's tried to smooth the edges and appear much more professional, calm, a bit like a bank manager, you might say. What was your impression of him after profiling and interviewing? the Shadow Chancellor. Yeah, so I want to pick you up, Seb, on the phrase, quite interesting. It's obviously a very interesting Hugely interesting. And we need to sell this to our readers very hard. Being serious, we've waited two years to talk to John McDonnell at length. Um, even Jeremy gave us an interview back in 2015 when he was running for leader over a quiche in Euston. No stereotyping there. And he opened up quite a bit, I think, in... We spoke for about an hour and three quarters. He posted photographs in Hayes, his constituency in West London. Um, and we, we covered a lot of ground. We talked about his personal life. We talked about him growing up in Liverpool and then Great Yarmouth and his early life. We talked about his time at the GLC. We talked about him as Shadow Chancellor. I mean, going back to your initial point about the controversy around when he was first selected to be Shadow Chancellor, it was, it was quite a moment. I mean, Corbyn was under a lot of pressure not least from the major unions, to go for someone more consensual. Remember, they were talking about people like Angela Eagle at the time. And he felt that John McDonnell was the person he could trust. They agreed on everything. They'd been working together, agreeing on everything pretty much for about 30 years. Um, but I spoke to one former general secretary of a union, Paul Kenny, who was the head of the GMB. And this particular quote didn't make the FT magazine because it's probably a bit distasteful to some. But he said he'd fallen out with John McDonnell, couldn't stand him, didn't trust him. And he had a use for him next time he has diarrhoea. <laughs> My word. I think, Chris Giles, that sort of clarifies this point that you've written about many chancellors and shadow chancellors over the year. John McDonnell is quite a unique figure in the sense that he has very clear policies, which are very um, a big break from what Labour's done in recent years. Yes, in the 2017 election, we had the most amount of clear blue or red water, however you want to describe it, between the two parties. But, you know, you do have to be a bit careful because what Labour was proposing was £48 billion of tax increases, which is 2.5% of national income. That would not change the British economy from a capitalist society into some sort of Soviet 
misery zone. You know, <laughs> let, let, let's be absolutely clear. It doesn't even get us close to being a Scandinavian country. And on corporation so, tax, it would take yeah. us back to 2010, yeah. even though it's a massive yeah. increase from 19p to 26p. Yeah. It's, it's what yeah. the right you, to you, You've got to put this into some perspective. So the reason people, or some people, are extremely worried, and a lot of them in the Labour Party, not, not necessarily people in the city, about uh, John McDonnell, is that they think this is the thin end of a wedge. That those uh, tax increases which were often described by experts as being a bit pie in the sky because you say being very honest and you're going to get this $48 billion by taxing the very rich and companies, but actually you've really made a whole bunch of assumptions mean you probably wouldn't get that money anyway. And then if you don't get the money, what does he do next? And I think what Chris got to there is the real rub of this piece, Jim, which is how radical is John McDonnell that since he became Shadow Chancellor, he's done a lot to appear a lot more, I don't want to say, you know, acceptable to various different parts of society, of the Labour Party, and, and with his economic policies. He said in your interview that our objectives are socialist, but he doesn't necessarily want to, you know, end capitalism, even though that was once the stated aim in his who's who biography. So then that's the real question mm-hmm. here is, if John McDonnell becomes Chancellor, enters the Treasury, how radical do you think he would be? Exactly. And the reason people ask this question in the way that they wouldn't ask this of, of previous shadow chancellors, such as Ed Balls, is that these are guys who have cited Marx and Lenin as their inspirations. John McDonnell has talked about Trotsky, Marx, Lenin were his three political inspirations. Not Mao, although he did make that joke about the Mao book. Um, And, you know, you take Andrew Murray, who's currently working advising Jeremy Corbyn in Corbyn's office. He's the chief of staff at Unite. He was actually in the Communist Party of Great Britain until about a year ago. So when people say these aren't centrist politicians, there is a reason why they, brackets we, say that, because they are very much from the hard left. Whether that means that, Seb, you're going to end up in a gulag in five years' time, I I think probably not. But we do take the view that the manifesto of last year, as radical as it was compared to the last 25 years, there could be other things coming down the line. And we had a FT Money event on Monday in the City of London where a lot of people were asking us questions about what we thought might be coming on the horizon. And there's quite a lot of scope for him to do radical things. Yeah, I think if you go and talk to people in the city or economists, it's not what was in the manifesto, even though there'll be a lot of criticisms of that. It's what might come next. And there's a lot of people, you might say they're misguided or extremely right wing, but they would say they're less worried about Brexit and more worried about a possible Labour government with Corbyn and McDonnell in charge of it. And were that the case, we've heard the Labour Party have been wargaming the scenario of a, a currency crisis when they came in. But I think there would be quite a lot of trepidation, not about the expressed policies, but what would come next. So, for example, on the nationalisation, I don't think people would mind too much if, if you borrow some money to buy back some private sector companies which are not uh, necessarily performing very well in the private sector at a sensible, reasonable market price. But if you essentially expropriate them, that's quite a different thing. And if you then meant there was no competition, so they were the only game in town and in the state sector, not necessarily runway, well, that could be quite a different kettle of fish altogether. And I think one actual policy area, Jim, that picks up on this is the PFI thing, which is that Labour has 
given this position that they will bring PFI back in house and the language they've used is very careful about this about whether would they you know simply let the PFI contracts run out and then just the state would take them over automatically or would they pass a law of parliament to then change the law so they can just take them back with no compensation and I sort of feel that's quite a key test for how radical they would be and you've written many news stories about this and the FT's mm. written editorials about this and I think we're not really clear about what John McDonnell would want to do about that because clearly it's instantly is to get them all back in house as quickly as possible and not give as much compensation. But that would risk huge amounts of confidence failure in the city and in in the UK. Yeah, so we got um, past a recording of a speech he gave in East London a few weeks ago where he was talking about PFI and he used the phrase, Parliament will decide whether or not there's compensation. And I think realistically they would pay compensation, but I don't think it would be market rate. So that that would alarm some investors, obviously. I think going back to Chris's point about whether business in the city now see McDonald and Labour as a bigger threat than Brexit. I mean, talking to lobbyists, government advisor type people, I think the point is that Brexit we've now known about in the run up to the referendum. We've had 18 months for people to get their heads around it. Yeah, I mean, not not to underestimate the impact of Brexit on the business world, but they've had teams of people working on the potential ramifications for each industry, for each sector, for their specific company. And they're now turning their attentions to Labour as the next medium term threat or issue to worry about. And this event we ran on Monday night, a lot of questions people were asking. They were basically asking, you know, if I'm a buy-to-let investor, what's likely to happen? If I'm a private equity investor, would, would a McDonald government change the tax treatment of debt, for example? And the answer I would give to them is, well, yeah, it's not in the manifesto, but you would expect that kind of thing. A hard-left government wouldn't be comfortable with people owning 20 buy-to-let properties uh, with fairly preferential tax treatment, while lots of people under the age of 40 can't buy their own home. What we have to remember is that there is quite a lot of public support for a lot of these ideas that 10 years ago were seen as fringe, nationalisations of the utilities, crackdown on buy-to-let, and the big one, which wasn't in the manifesto, a potential wealth tax. I think the wealth tax issue is the one which they didn't go for, but I think they would probably love to do. I'm sure they'd love to do some sort of wealth tax. It's always very difficult because if you put a wealth tax on inheritance, then people often spend the money or give the money earlier. So it's actually quite a difficult tax to introduce. And I think they were, in that sense, quite wise not to flag it ahead of time because everyone would just say, oh, you can't do this because of this, this and this and this reason. It would have been quite a distraction. In government, though, when you have civil servants to go and try and work it out, lots of other countries have wealth taxes. They're not necessarily very large, but it is, I would have thought, something that you would expect from a Labour government, certainly a left-wing Labour government, and anyone who thinks it's not in the manifesto, it's not going to happen, I think is being rather naive. I think the other interesting thing as well is that the, the chat has been for the last couple of years that Jeremy Corbyn is only one person... And the Labour Party is this sort of labyrinthine bureaucracy whereby decisions take all sorts of votes of national policy forums and national executive committees and Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. But the speed with which they are scything through some of these organisations and replacing previous centrists with pro-Corbyn people is happening quite fast. I mean, you saw it with the General Secretary Ian McNichol, who was forced to step away about a week ago and we're seeing this interesting battle between United Momentum to replace him. But my point is um, any kind of breaking mechanisms within the party are going to evaporate to some extent quite quickly, although they can't get rid of the right-wing and centrist MPs as quickly as they might like. But one other theory is that the maths of this 
that a huge majority for a Corbyn government is unlikely. So even if they manage to scrape through, they might have to work with the SNP or with the Lib Dems or with the rump of the Blairites. And therefore, a lot of this stuff could be politically neutralised or at least watered down. And of course, as your profile said very clearly, remember that both Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell voted against the Blair and Brown governments many, many hundreds of times. Uh, so you would have, find it rather difficult to operate an extremely tight whipping operation in government. There's two other elements of the McDonald profile I just wanted to ask you about. The first is his relationship with Jeremy Corbyn. There's a fantastic quote in your piece uh, which likens them to the Torville and Dean of British politics while Jeremy's skating around the country. John McDonald's back at base doing all the work, doing all the, the strategy papers and that sort of thing with another quote describing uh, Corbyn as a dosser, like, you know, some guy who's actually just, you know doing the speeches, doing the rallies, popping up on TV, but not actually doing the strategic thinking. So the, the image you paint is very much of a, of a symbiotic unit. Is that, mm. is that a fair thing? Yeah, and they know each other's strengths and weaknesses, and they do complement each other, in John McDonald's phrase. And he denies this completely because it's obviously not that flashing to Jeremy Corbyn, is it? Um, and so at that point in the interview, he, he looked a little bit cross at the suggestion that he might be the brains behind the operation. Um, I think brains behind the operation is probably the wrong phrase, but I think he is the one doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And interestingly, a former Labour MP this morning on Twitter was, was saying to me that Whenever he was in the library in the House of Commons, it was always John McDonnell who'd be there with his head in a in a massive pile of papers, actually working things through before making his speeches in, in the Commons. And I think because of that, Chris, it's you know it's quite hard to trip up John McDonnell in broadcast interviews in the way that Jeremy Corbyn often does. That his policies often come unstuck, whereas with John McDonnell, he has such a thorough understanding of what his policies and arguments are that he does project across a kind of calm figure, even if what he's saying is quite radical. Yeah, and he's he's unapologetic about the policies he's putting forward. So it's not that he's trying to hide who he says is going to pay the increased taxes. He says no, and they deserve to pay more. So you know, when you're so used to politicians actually trying to back away or slightly brush under the carpet some, some of the aspects of the policy, one of the rather refreshing things about Labour now is generally they are pretty honest about the effects. Uh, where people thought they weren't entirely honest in the election last year was, you know, they said it was totally costed and they would easily get the money and it was you know the, the ifs uh, disputed that in some there ways were yeah. huge disputes not only from the ifs but but the, they, they took optimistic assumptions let's put it like that on the amounts of money they would get but they were absolutely clear who was going to pay and they were totally unapologetic about it so if you're an interviewer one of the particularly on a broadcast interview, one of the ways you try and do it is trying to tease out what people's real position is when they're trying to hide it. Well, they're not trying to hide it. And the other thing, Jim, is his health as well, which I think has been discussed in the corridors of Westminster. And you point out in your piece that he had a heart attack in 2013 and his workload has increased significantly since then, as well as Shadow Chancellor, but also as this sort of strategic thinker behind the whole Corbyn project. And if he was to become Chancellor, he would be 70 years old at that point mm -hmm. as Jeremy Corbyn would be for Prime Minister then. <laughs> Do you get the sense that he's got it in him to make it all that way? He was quite open about the heart attack in 2013 which I've not seen much written about elsewhere and how he'd been giving um, various speeches it was May Day of that year and he was giving Tony Benn I think a lift down to Brighton and the, the heart tremors occurred and, and he was rushed to hospital. I don't think he's ever going to lose his appetite for hard work 
And one thing I say about John McDonnell, whatever you think of his politics, is that he's a very, very serious individual. And when he was 20, an age at which I was mostly just drinking beer, he was married, he quite quickly had two children, he was working in factories, he was studying politics at night school and then at university. And at the same time, him and his first wife were running a children's home for 10 kids, obviously from difficult circumstances. You know, he's a very serious guy. When you talk to people who... Uh, in his constituency, or I, I spoke to John Stewart from the anti-Heathrow campaign. This didn't make it into the magazine piece, but John was saying that John McDonnell would often be rushing back from Westminster to his constituency to deal with various problems. I spoke to John McDonnell about the issue of homelessness and people on waiting lists for social housing in Hayes and Harlington, and just awful cases of people. You know, he was talking about a pregnant woman with mental health issues who was having to live in a shed and he was trying to get her housing. He's not going to lose his his passion for doing all that stuff, but the workload is phenomenal to have to do that on top of the responsibilities of being shadow chancellor, also doing big strategic thinking, which Jeremy Corbyn is quite possibly less capable of. So, yeah, he's had doctor's advice to pace himself. He's doing a lot more walking than he used to do. He doesn't drink that much. Um, he doesn't seem to have other other vices of a, of a health nature. But, yeah, maybe the health thing is, is an issue for him with his advancing years. And finally, very briefly, I suppose, leads to the final question, which is, does he have leadership ambitions? That if Jeremy decides to stand aside before the next election, do you think John McDonnell would run for leader? And would he be successful? Well, there's a sort of truism, isn't there, that most of the 650 MPs in the House of Commons sort of in their private moments think they've got it in them to be prime minister. Otherwise, they wouldn't go through the hellish amounts of hard work that it it takes even to become an MP or or a minister or whatever. I suspect having stood twice and lost twice and having now got himself in a position where he's exercising enormous amounts of power, I do kind of believe him when he says that um, he's not going to go for it, absolutely not. But then I, I kind of believed Michael Gove as well a year ago. <laughs> and that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to George, Jim, Chris and Miranda for joining us this week. We'll be back for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder. So until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.